Hello and happy holidays to all our wonderful listeners. This is Robert Hossery, the executive producer of 10 Lessons Learned. I wanted to take a moment to let you know that the 10 Lessons crew will be taking a well-deserved break for the holiday season. We'll be away for about two weeks to recharge and spend time with our loved ones. But fear not, we have something special planned for you while we're away. We've delved into our vault and handpicked two past episodes we think you'll absolutely love. We'll be rebroadcasting these episodes during our break so you can still enjoy some valuable insights and inspiring stories from our incredible guests. I personally guarantee these episodes will be worth the listen. Whether you're a long-time listener or a brand new to 10 Lessons Learned, it's a great opportunity to revisit some fantastic conversations or discover them for the first time. Rest assured, we'll be back with fresh episodes and exciting guests after the holiday season, so stay tuned and keep an eye out for our return in the new year. From all of us here at 10 Lessons Learned, we wish you a joyous holiday season filled with love, laughter and new learnings. Thank you for your continued support and for being such an amazing listener. Happy holidays. Hello and welcome to the podcast, 10 Lessons. It took me 50 years to learn where we dispense wisdom for your career and your life. My name is Duff Watkins and I'm your host. Our guest today is Ellen Langer, who is professor of psychology at Harvard University and happens to be the first female tenured professor at the psychology department. Ellen, welcome to the show. My pleasure. A lot of folks may not be familiar with the work, so let me introduce you. First of all, you have won four distinguished scientific awards, the titles of which are so long, we can't say them on the show because I can't remember them. Also, the bottom line is this, the work that you've done in psychology, anyone who is studying psychology in an American university will be reading your stuff, probably in the textbook that you contributed to or co-authored. And you're an author, you have over 200 published articles. You have written six books, soon to be a seventh. And the sum as I see it is you're one of the key people who has helped drive mind, body, medicine from the fringe to being mainstream, from being a new age, wanky kind of thing to being conventional medicine. Does that sound right? Sure, why not? <laughs> but wait, there's more. You've been such a key influence in positive psychology that you're called the mother of positive psychology. You're also called the mother of mindfulness. So my question, what is it with the mother thing in American psychology? <laughs> I, I, I think it just means I have a lot of children. I think it's a very nice place to be. Good. So you don't, you don't get tired of that. No. Well, having your six books that are currently published, I want to mention two in particular. One is a book called Mindfulness. It just arrived, attained its 25-year anniversary. So listeners, what I want to say, when a book lasts for 25 years and still keeps being published, that means two things. One, it's very good. Two, statistically, it means it's highly likely it will be published for the next 25 years as well. So basically, we're talking about a classic here, mindfulness. The second book that I want to mention is called Counterclockwise, a book that is so significant, so important, it actually has been mentioned on the Simpsons television show. You know you've arrived academically when you get mentioned on the Simpsons. I know what Counterclockwise is about. Could you sum it up in a sentence or two, Ellen? Sure. First, I'm struggling to see whether I should correct the number of books or not. It's many more. Now, go forward with Counterclockwise. It was a, a based on research I did in 1979, a long time ago. And what we did was to have old men live in a retreat that was retrofitted to 20 years earlier, as if they were their younger selves. They spoke about the present events, past events, and the present tense, and so on. So everything was for them to put their minds in the place it had been 20 years ago. And this was the first test of the mind-body unity study idea, which is basically mind-body are just words, put them back together. Wherever you put the mind, you're necessarily putting the body. So this was the first study where we put the mind in a strange place. These are men around 80 years old or such. They live this way for a week. We take measures before and after. And what we found, being their younger selves, their vision and their hearing improved, their strength improved, and they look noticeably younger. 
which is very nice uh, because all of these effects occurred without medical intervention. It's one of the first studies showing just how powerful the mind is. And so we captured clockwise, which means we put him back in time. And if your mind is in that younger place, so too will your body. And the effect was so profound. These guys arrived on walking frames and sticks and shambling along. And as they were leaving, a touch football game spontaneously yeah. broke out among the guys. That is how powerful is the mind-body connection. And that they were living in a situation where they would turn on the radio and they would get news from 20, 30 years ago. The magazines they picked up or the TV guide was from, they turned on the TV and it was from news from 20, 30 years. So they were totally immersed in this and it's been replicated since a fantastic fantastic result let me say those six books that i mentioned those are the popular ones not the textbooks not the academic <laughs> ones those are ones a lot of our readers will come to yes one has to keep their ego in check at all <laughs> 10 lessons it took me 50 years to learn as our podcast but you've tweaked it it's 10 lessons you don't need a lifetime to learn you just need to listen to this podcast let me start with lesson number one Behavior always makes sense from the actor's perspective. Yes, what that means, we tend to come up with single explanations for events. And when we recognize that the actor and the observer of that action are in two different places, and that I wouldn't do it if it didn't make sense to me. Yet you see it in some negative light. So nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to be clumsy, mean, and impulsive. So what are they intending? So it turns out that from my perspective, I'm being trusting. You may see me as gullible. You may see me as inconsistent. From my perspective, I'm flexible. I may see you as impulsive. From your perspective, you're spontaneous. Turns out that for every single negative description, there's an equally potent but oppositely valenced alternative. For every negative, there's actually a positive way of viewing it. And when you do that, then you have a better understanding of the individual. More important than that, you become less judgmental. You know, you may not like me for being gullible, but when you recognize that I'm being trusting, then all of a sudden you have no interest in changing my behavior. So this is the best way, I think, for people to become less evaluative. When they realize that the person is behaving in a way that makes sense to them, then I am free to be less judgmental about that, about you. Right, right. Lesson number two, certainty is a mindless illusion. Yes. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. Yet at schools podcasts, newspapers, magazines, always give us information as if it's absolute. And what happens is when you call the world still, when it's actually in flux, you end up with less control than you otherwise would have, even though the whole thing is designed in part to give you control. Mm -hmm. Uncertainty is a fact of life. If you embrace uncertainty and exploit the power of uncertainty, you're going to be much more successful in all of your ventures. So when you're taught something, so for example, I was taught horses don't eat meat. Now, and it's just a fact, you accept it. But it turns out I was at this horse event. This man asked me, when I watch his horse, well, he goes and gets his horse a hot dog. Well, Harvard, Yale, all the way through, I'm thinking, you know, this is ridiculous. He brought back the hot dog and the horse ate it. And at that moment, I realized that everything I thought I knew could be wrong. I often start talks by asking people. So I'll, I'll ask you, Duff, how much is one in one? Well, uh, two. Everybody knows that. Nothing. And yeah, it's except it's not, right. It's not always two. If you add one cloud to one cloud, one plus one is one. You add one one of chewing gum to one one of chewing gum, one plus one is one. You add one pile of laundry to one pile of laundry, one plus one. Okay, so the point is that everything depends on the context in which it's embedded. And we tend to learn information in a context-free way, which leaves us mindless, where we think we know, but in fact, we don't. So if your listeners were to take nothing else from all that I'm going to say and have said um, away from this, to learn something, recognize the importance of uncertainty. Everything is uncertain. And, and you know, people now tend to make a personal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know, you may be, you know, maybe you know, Therefore, I'll pretend or feel uncomfortable or less than. But 
They should change that to a universal attribution. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. They can't know, right? And so then not knowing becomes fun. It motivates you. You know, if I now ask, if somebody asks you how much is one in one, you're not going to mindlessly answer. You're going to pay attention to the situation to see which of the many answers may be the correct answer, right? So that when we think we know, we tune out. We shouldn't think we know because we can't know. When you don't know, and you know you don't know, and you know it's okay not to know, then life becomes interesting and okay. become more and more real. Let me ask you, so why do we cling to certainty? Even though it's an illusion, why do we pursue it, pretend to, along with it, wed ourselves to it assiduously? Yes. We're, we're taught from the very earliest ages, and especially reinforced in schools, on that there are absolute answers. And that the more of these you know, the more successful you're going to be in life. And I'm not sure exactly why everything was set up this way. My guess is that it maintains the status quo, you know, that those people in power stay in power as long as everybody else believes they know more. But in, in fact, we can't know, and not knowing is a good thing because then there's reason to explore. So it very, it, it's very much cultural and societal, but uh, we sure see it. I, I think that it basically goes across most cultures. And today the world is so small that many of those cultural differences um, have disappeared over time. And virtually all cultures that I've looked at, and there may be exceptions, I don't know, that people are taught absolutes. Absolutes breed mindlessness. Once you think you know, you don't pay any attention. So that's why mindfulness, as I study it, is the very simple process of noticing new things. When you notice new things about the things you know, you come to see you don't know them as well as you thought you did, your attention naturally goes to that. And then it becomes hard. You know, learning and mastering is what's fun. Having mastered or learned doesn't get you very far. And that's your point, I think, when you say this point number three, one plus one doesn't always equal two. Once you give up the certainty that it must equal two and must equal two every single time, then there's a sort of a liberation that occurs. You're, you're suddenly open to new possibilities yes. that you had excluded before. Yes. Once you know that it's okay not to know, that it's mindful not to know, then you get an opportunity to discover and everything becomes new and exciting. Things like boredom or stress, all of these things that people suffer from disappear. You know, that uh, situations are not new or old. It depends on how you view them. If you view them mindlessly and hold it still, this is a terrible situation. I must be stressed. You're going to be stressed. If you say, oh, this is the same old, same old, you're going to be bored. But those are in your head, not in the situation. So if you take the situation that's boring, and you notice ways in which right now it's different, and it will be different if for no other reason you're different from the last time, then it becomes exciting again. Situations that are stressful are often stressful because you think they're brand new and you don't know how to respond, but there are aspects of that situation that are very familiar. So mm -hmm. being mindful is not just noticing the new in the old, it's noticing the old in the new. It's saying that whatever single explanation you have, is only one of several. And all of us, most people around the globe have been taught to answer questions with single answers. And when there are always multiple ways of looking at things. Lucky, let me ask you this. This is a true story. I recruited a guy. I run an executive search firm. I recruited a guy. He was a Latin American. He was in a Latin American Air Force. I won't mention the countries, but he said he and his team parachuted into they were in, they were uh, fighting terrorists, Sendero de Luminoso, the Shining Path, and they were fighting them. They parachuted into, at night, into another country, illegally as it turns out, and they were lost. And, and I said to him, what did you do? And he said, well, the thing is, when you're in the military, the people, your men are looking at you. He was the captain. He said, the guys look at you and you can't say, well, I don't know. I don't know where we are. I don't know what to do. They're lost at night in enemy-occupied territory where they weren't supposed to be. And I've thought about that many times. When you're in a position where you can't say, fellas, I'm sorry, I, I just don't know what to do. I'm open for suggestions. What do you do then? Well, it, it's interesting. I think the best way to be in this world is to be confident but uncertain. 
and that to pretend you know when you don't know when there's somebody there who might have information that you don't have that would be useful to the success of the mission, uh, you, you should be open to it. I think that there are ways of saying, I don't know, where people question your authority, people get nervous and so on. And there are ways of saying it. Look, you know, this is, this is new. Let's use all the information we have from the past and, and we'll figure it out. Here's what I think that we should do. Does anybody have a better idea? You know, which is different from, gee, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, please help. Well, a leader may become scared when they mistakenly think they should know and then discover they don't know. They never know. You know, people suffer from an illusion of um, predictability. We can't predict, but all of us think that we can, virtually mm -hmm. all of us. And um, so I tell a little story about this. So I tell my students in an advanced graduate course on decision-making, I've been teaching a version of this course for over 40 years. I've never missed a class. What is the likelihood I'm going to be here next week? So it's a small class and go around the room. And they, you know, these are Harvard students, so they don't say 100%. They say totally things like 98%, 97%. But they're all essentially saying they predict I'll be there next week. Then I say to them, okay, we're going to go around the room, and I want each of you to give me a good reason why I won't be here next week. The first one says, always, almost always, at least says, oh, we have always been here. You think it's, you know, you, you've earned the time off, so you don't come. I mean, the next person says, your dog has to go to the vet. The next person says, you got a flat tire. And you go, we go around the room, 12 people, 12 good answers. And then I say, okay, what is the likelihood I'm going to be here next week? And 100% drops to 50%. Going forward, when we realize all of the various possibilities that could unfold, we become aware that we don't know. Looking back, it's very easy to say, oh, I should have known when it reveals itself. You know, if I said to you, Jim and Susie were fighting at the party, are they going to get divorced? Who knows, right? People fight. If you find out that Jim and Susie are getting divorced, then you say, ah, yeah, I know, because I saw them fighting at the party. So looking back gives us an illusion of knowing that we don't have going forward. It's the ex post facto reasoning and confabulation that occurs. And going to the military situation, confident but uncertain. Let's all write that down. That's a good way to be. And the illusion that my captain commander friend had was that he knew what the hell he was doing anyway. So his, he was exactly. clinging to the exactly. when he landed. Yeah. You know, that if he knew exactly what it was, what he was going to do, that would mean that everything in that situation was perfectly knowable. And, you know, uh, all you need is a log, you know, a tree that fell that blocks the path, you know, that he was supposed to take. And then you have to improvise. But the point, the larger point is that everything is always new. Everything is always changing. Recognizing that keeps you alert. Following a plan mindlessly gets you into trouble because that plan was derived at an earlier time before all of the conditions were known. All of the plans that we make, not just in the military, in life, you make a plan for yourself that's based on what you know right now. And all we know is that when you're doing it, there will be things that are different. So you, you, want, you want your plans to be loose. You want um, plans, rules, routines to guide what you're doing rather than to govern what you're doing. You don't want to do the same thing regardless of the context, just because that was the plan. That's called a rut. You've touched upon this point already. Point number four, everyone doesn't know something, but everyone knows something else. Yes. Yeah. That because of schools, the military, many institutions in our culture set things up so that we have a sense that people, some people are winners, some people are losers. And that leads to problems because very often that person, well, the person who's considered a loser doesn't have the motivation to succeed after that. But putting that aside, that that person has special information that could be useful. Let me give you an example. I was lecturing in South Africa and I took an afternoon and was down by the swimming pools, very fancy hotel. And they had this entire area that was unused. And with very expensive real estate, right? The only person who knew that was the lowly cabin boy. But who was going to ask his advice, all right? Simply that everybody knows something. If we assume that only the people who get A's in school or who win the football game or whatever it is 
are the people who know we lose out. And it also, the idea, there's a little song I wrote for my grandkids, <laughs> little Diddy, everybody doesn't know something, but everybody knows something else, allows you to not know. And so that commander you were talking about, mm-hmm. or that teacher, or me with my grandkids, should feel free to say, gee, I don't know. Let's find out. Rather than the assumption that we have the information that we can't have because things are changing, and then we pretend we distance ourselves from the kids, from the army, from the students, and everything proceeds in a less efficient manner than it otherwise would. And this is the tenor of the conversation I'm picking up from you. This uncertainty is not to be driven necessarily. It can be embraced. No, it's to be embraced. It's to be embraced. In fact, the bottom line to all of this is that the power we seek is found in, in exploiting uncertainty. The uncertainty is there. You can ignore it mm-hmm. if you want, which mm-hmm. people do, or even be oblivious to the fact that things are uncertain. But once we recognize it, then everything becomes new and everything becomes exciting again. And so, you know, that when your mind which is, again, for me, just the simple process of noticing new things. And that puts you in the present. You have all of the silly stuff that people say, be in the moment. It's an empty instruction because when you're not there, you don't know that you're not there. The way to be in the present is just simply noticing new things. As you notice those new things, the neurons are fiery, life is exciting, and you're going then to be in a position to take advantage of opportunities to which other people would be blind and avert the danger and not yet arisen. You know, that we have your soldiers in the middle of some godforsaken place in the middle of the night. And if they are aware that they don't know and that it's okay not to know, then all of a sudden they're going to see things and opportunities that they might otherwise have missed. I don't know what the, you know, not being a soldier (laughs) traveled in that way. I don't know what to use as an example, but... Hopefully your audience can fill in the blanks. You, you spoke to this point, point number five. Every negative ascription has an equally potent but opposite alternative. Can you elaborate on that? I'm not sure I grasp that. Yeah. Okay. That's what I had said earlier. We can do it as far as characteristics of people. So that's why I said, you know, you can see me as inconsistent or you can see me as flexible. One is negative, one is positive. Uh, you can see me as impulsive, you can see me as spontaneous, gullible or trusting and so on. But it's also the case that with events, events don't come with valence. Events are not good, not bad. They're nothing. They're just events. And it's the way we think about them that makes them positive, negative, neutral. So you and I go out for lunch. I don't, I always use this example. I'm not sure why, but nevertheless, we go out for lunch and the food is good. Wonderful. Okay. We go out for lunch and the food is awful. Wonderful. I'll eat less. All right. Which for me would be a puzzle. You know, let's say that I was going to do this podcast for you, which we're doing right now, but that I get a note, an email from you right before, gee, sorry, I can't make it. Uh, my car has a flat tire. So now, is that negative or positive? Well, for me, it's positive. Then I have a found hour to do what I want. And if we do the podcast and we have fun with it, which we we are, that's also positive. You know, it's not pie in the sky. It's recognizing not that everything is positive. Everything is neither positive nor negative. So given that the way you feel is going to be a function of whether you see it as positive or negative, why not choose to see it as positive? But the important point is, it is nothing. We create the world for ourselves that we're going to experience. The way we understand people. I mean, that's a, you know, so if I see you as inconsistent, I might not want, I might not want to have anything to do with you. It's annoying. If I see you as flexible, then I embrace you. And I look forward to our interactions. So what I'm suggesting is the same expression, inconsistent, flexible, they both equally describe the situation, your behavior. One leads me to feel good. One leads me to treat you more respectfully. And the other quite the opposite. So that's the choice. Given that we can choose how to see things, I don't see an advantage in saying them negative. And that's the point number six, that 
outcomes are neither good nor bad, independent of how we see them. I read that and I thought, Ellen, you've been dipping into your Epictetus again. You've been dabbling in the Stoic philosophy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I learned this in high school and I'm still trying to wrestle with Epictetus said, for those of you who don't know, he said a long time ago, we are not upset by the events that occur, but by our opinions of the things that occur. And your point, Ellen, is we actually have a bloody choice as to how we see, interpret, view. But it's people, it's, it's people and events that every time that we're uh, making an evaluation where we think it's in the thing, it's not, it's in our minds. And so stress is a result of these views rather than the event itself. And when you realize that every, every time you're uh, feeling something negative, that you've implicitly made a choice that, um, might not be working for you. And so we have all of this, um, it says over and over again, we have far more control over our lives than most people realize they do. Mm -hmm. And the way to experience that control starts off by this appreciation of uncertainty and this act of notice. Everything changes. And that takes us to point number seven, to feel differently, view it differently. And one of the more cited uh, experiments in psychology is the chambermaid experiment. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Cause I think it's such a beautiful illustration of what you're yeah. hearing been talking about. This is a, a more recent test of the mind body unity theory. Um, so we took chambermaids and we asked them how much exercise they get. And despite the fact that they're working all day long, exercising all day these long, are people making they, rooms in hotels. Right. Make, yeah. That's right. They see themselves as not getting any exercise because to them, exercise, according to the Surgeon General, is what you do after work. And after work, they're just too tired. Let's put that aside for the moment. Now, what we do is we take these chambermaids and divide them into groups. And the important group, we teach them that their work is exercise. Making a bed is working on this machine at the gym and so on. The only change for them is their mindset. Now they see their work as exercise. Right. So we take all sorts of measures and we repeat them at the end of three weeks. And are they eating any differently after this? No. Are they working any harder? No. We get as much information as we can. The only thing that seems to be different is the mindset. As a result of now seeing their work as exercise, they lost weight. There was a change in waist to hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down just by changing their minds. Let's, let me restate that. They're doing the same job, the same way, the same. All you did was say, think of it as exercise and their physiological responses as easily measurable weights, blood pressure, things of that nature reduced. And they simply became healthier by thinking of it as exercise. Yes. Yeah. And we have a lot of uh, uh, tests um, like this with all different diseases and so on. We'll talk about it in a moment. But the, the main idea is that. The world, in some sense, it just is. It's an is. It's not anything in particular. Then we act on it, and the way we categorize and understand things is going to determine the way we use that information. And when we realize that uh, one in one, for example, is only sometimes two, uh, that most of the times horses don't eat meat, but that we can't be sure of any of this, then we stay tuned in. The neurons are firing and that's good for our health. And we end up with far more control over every aspect of our well-being. Can I just say, I too went to Yale for grad school and I didn't know horses eat hot dogs. I mean, what kind, what kind of, there's some serious gaps in my education. Okay, with the no, 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 that's what they, no, but, but that, that's the point. That's what they teach us. And we accept it without thinking about it. We're not told how many horses were tested, how large were the horses, how hungry were the horses, how much beef was mixed with how much grain and, you know, and so on. And each of those things make a difference. And when we recognize that everything is a little less certain than we thought, we don't get locked in in the same way. You know, you're doing something and you need an ingredient for what you're cooking and you don't have the ingredient. There's some people who just won't make whatever it is rather than say, okay, a person created this recipe. How did they create it? They mixed and matched and experimented. All right. So what else can I use for this 
whatever it is you need. So you need salad cream. You don't have salad cream. So, you know, I use yogurt. You don't have yogurt. I don't know, maybe even whipped cream cheese. I, you know, it, it's going to taste different, but that difference may be an advantage. And if we recognize that in general, life is a social construction. That means people decided how we do things, what we have, what is the best way to approach them. Just people who lived at a different point in time with different experience, different biases, and so on. And when you keep that in mind, that it was just other people, it's easier to make changes. And so in this framework, everything becomes mutable. An example, you see a sign on the lawn, and unless you live in New York, and the sign says, keep off the grass. And unless you're a New Yorker, you're just going to keep off the grass. Now, compare that with the sign that says, Ellen says, keep off the grass. If, who's Ellen? Maybe she doesn't live here. Maybe I can negotiate with her. Right? And then, you know, or, or I'll walk on the grass now, but I'll make it up to her another way. The point is it becomes mutable. You think you can still take some action as soon as you know people were there. Now, interestingly, when you want to persuade somebody to do something, you leave out the people component. When you want people to feel free to make uh, adjustments, you add people components. So when I tell you, oh, I don't know, let's say smoking is bad for your health and you shouldn't smoke. If I told you a, um, a study by Duff Watkins and Ellen Langer found that under these conditions, uh, people who smoke are likely to get this and that uh, result, then it becomes much more iffy. Now, I'm not telling people they should smoke or not smoke, but simply to believe smoking, I'm sure there are situations where smoking isn't bad for your health. I'm sure if you're 95 years old, uh, the stimulant that's in most tobacco products is probably good for you. Everything that's bad for you, gambling is supposed to be bad for you. I don't agree with that. But again, if you take people, you know, say elderly people whose lives are lived now in a not very exciting way and you bring them to a casino, they come alive. So the right answer, I think, to almost any question is it depends. How much is one in one? It depends. Do horses eat meat? It depends. Should this uh, soldier in this foreign country go to the right or the left? It depends. <laughs> the right answer to every question is it depends. Okay, I can prove it to you. So, so the takeaway for folks is, is that if I feel stressed about an event, it's not the event. It's my interpretation of that event, the way I'm choosing. And there's a great deal of choice here to experience that particular event. Okay. Right. And so I suggest for people who are suffering stress to do two things. First, to recognize that events that we can't predict and what an event is going to be, we can't make predictions. Second, that whatever it is, we have means of interpreting. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the belief is this thing is going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be awful. You want to attack both of those. So this thing is going to happen. Give yourself three reasons why it might not happen. Right. So if you went from thinking it's definitely going to happen to it might not happen. You immediately feel better. Now let's assume it does happen. How might that actually be an advantage? So you went from this terrible thing is definitely going to happen, scared to death, to maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. And if it does happen, that'll bring me these advantages. So then you, instead of being reactive, you can just sit back and, and uh, live your life in this more comfortable way. That's reminding me when I used to work in psychiatry as a psychotherapist, I learned rigidity is the kiss of death. I mean, to be unyielding in life is just, is not a good thing, which takes us to point number eight. Every activity can be done mindlessly or mindfully. Right. And, you know, so that I can be answering your questions mindlessly or mindfully. I can be eating the sandwich mindfully or mindlessly. I can be playing tennis. It doesn't matter what you're doing. But the point is that over 40 years of research has made clear to me that if you do it mindfully, you reap all sorts of benefits. If you do it mindlessly, it's essentially a non-event and you set yourself up for all sorts of problems. And any event can be any activity can be engaged mindfully by simply noticing the ways it's new. 
So even if you've done it a thousand times, it's never quite the same. You're not the same. And when you're aware of that, and so we have things to go far afield from this practice. Most people are taught in learning a musical instrument or a sport, keep doing it until it becomes second nature. Terrible, because what that means is keep doing it until you don't have to think about it anymore, until you're mindless. Now, that would be fine if you knew that you had the very best way of doing it and nothing was going to change. But we, you can never meet those two conditions. And the way to practice is to get more and more comfortable with uncertainty. So you stay tuned in. And so, you know, if, for example, you're playing tennis, you're learning tennis and you always play against people who are right-handed, and now you think, oh, mastered this. And now all of a sudden you're playing with the first person who's left-handed. It's a different game. And that you're caught unaware because you think you know. And every time we act as if now we've got it, uh, we make ourselves vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So all practice should be engaged not to make perfect, but to recognize the uncertainty that's implicit in the situation. And that takes the point number nine. We've been talking a lot about mindfulness and you're description of it is very simple. Mindfulness is simply noticing new things. Yes. I, I sometimes I wish I had called it something different because, and, and I think I'm going to switch to talking about mindlessness, which seems to be people don't seem to get confused. But now you have lots of people who, when you say the word mindfulness, they think of meditation. Meditation is not mindfulness. Meditation is a practice you engage in order to result in post-meditative mindfulness. All right. Uh, And that's a practice. What I'm talking about is a way of life that stems from the very simple appreciation of uncertainty. When you're uncertain, you tune in. When you tune in, the way you tune in is to notice. And as you're noticing, again, the neurons are firing. It feels good. It turns out it's easy to do. It's not a practice. It's energy beginning, not consuming. And it's fun. It's what we're doing when we're, when we're enjoying ourselves. It's what we're doing when, whenever you laugh. You know, if I were to tell you a joke now, which I'm, I'm sort of Please tempted do. to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a couple of stock and tree jokes that are okay. easy to tell. Let me remember. Okay. So if I tell you that this clairvoyant midget escaped from prison, <laughs> that, 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 there, that there's a small medium at large. <laughs> okay. Okay, now, if it's funny, which it's, it's often not to people, but the reason it's funny is because when I say clairvoyant, you don't immediately think of medium as a size, so on, and large, at large, you know, out there in the world rather than, again, as a size. So it's the recognizing that you understood it one way, but it could have been understood a different way. And that's what makes it funny. All right. And so Realizing that is being mindful. When, if you're doing a crossword puzzle, that you like crossword puzzles, and you're engaged in it, it's all fun. The next time you do it, where you know all the words, it's no longer fun. So when, whenever you're having fun, it's because you're noticing new things. So we have studies, a simple study. We take people who hate football, who hate uh, rap music, who hate a lot of haters, hate classical music, don't like more. <laughs> And we have them engage in the activity where they notice we just have not listened to the rap music, listen to the play, or watch the football game. Or we say, notice one new thing about it. Notice three new things. Notice six new things. And what we find is the more you notice, the more you like the activity. So we have, um, you know, several studies showing that the more you notice, the more energized you are. And I use myself as an example here. Uh, and sometimes to the dismay of the people with whom I'm speaking, because is I start, most people, they start up here and then over time, they go like this and they get tired. For me, I start here and I just go up and up and up because I get more and more excited about what I'm saying. And when I get off of um, a podcast, a lecture, a uh, television, something that I'm, that I'm doing where I'm totally engaged. I end up all excited rather than depleted. So this kind of mindfulness isn't a practice. It's energy begetting, not consuming, as I've said. It's fun. It's what you're doing when you're enjoying yourself the most. So 
basically what I've said so far is that this thing is very, very easy to do. This act of noticing, the act of noticing feels good. Turns out it's very good for you. And not only that, when you're in the process of being mindful of actively noticing, people find you more charismatic, more authentic, more trustworthy. Not only that, but when you're doing the things you're doing, if you're doing them mindfully, it turns out that the product bears the imprint of that mindfulness. So we have, for example, we have a fun study with orchestras and they're all going to play the same pieces, but half of them we uh, encourage to be mindless, half mindful. When they're mindless, we say, remember a time you enjoyed playing this piece and then just replicate that performance. We say to the other group, make it new, very subtle ways that only you would know. Now they're playing classical music, so those ways indeed have to be subtle. We tape the performances and then we play them for people who have no idea about the study. People overwhelmingly prefer the mindfully played piece. Because of the work you're doing now, Doug, that another part of that study is relevant for you, which is, and I didn't realize this until I wrote up the paper for publication, that here we have a situation where people are made more mindful, noticing new things, so everybody is basically on their own, being mindful in a situation, and you end up with superior coordinated experience, which leads me to believe that the job of the leader, the most important job of the leader, is to provoke the mindfulness of those people being led. And it's easier to do that when you do all the things we've talked about so far, because you respect all of those people, even that lowly cabanable. Everybody just knows something, but everybody knows something else. And if they're all drawing their information from the same ongoing situation, that's why you get the coordinated experience. And you say... Very different view of leadership. And you say three things. One, it's effortless. Two, it's fun. And three, it begets energy. Yes. Yeah. And the newest work that we're doing, that we don't have time to go into, says that it's also contagious. So if you have a company and you make your leaders in the company more mindful, it will spread. I don't know exponentially or not, but it will spread. And it's the kind of thing where once you try it and get into this way of being, you don't need any extra motivation to do it because it's its own motivator. It feels good. So you do it. If you were to visit me, I'm in Provincetown, Massachusetts right now. If you came to visit me, you wouldn't have to practice being mindful. You get off the plane and everything. I know, I don't know if you've been to Provincetown, but you've never been to my house. That I know. So you come to my house. You're going to be looking around. It's going to be fun for you. It doesn't require any effort. And the mistake we have is in confusing mindfulness with just thinking, and thinking has gotten a bad rap, because thinking also isn't negative. It's worrying that you're not thinking correctly, worrying that you're not going to get the right solution. But the act of going from not knowing to knowing is exhilarating, and it's too bad that schools largely have turned us off to this whole thing by asking us to memorize, for example, mm -hmm. you know, which is ridiculous. Now, let me tell you a, little, a quick little story. Apropos of very little. Okay, so <laughs> I have my grandkids over at the house, and I say to them, do you want to get the Gujars, a made-up word, out of the hot tub? They are excited. They get the Gujars out of the hot tub. Now, the fact that I'm telling you the silly name purposely, so getting the leaves and debris, right? The next week, they come over, and they say, Grandma El, can we get the Gujars out of the hot tub? Now, you can be sure. That they didn't spend the week saying Gujars, Gujars, <laughs> right? That because it was meaningful to them, because it was fun, they instantly knew it. And yet you have schools telling us the way we're supposed to learn is to memorize. And I'm telling you the way you're supposed to learn is to make things meaningful. And the way to make them meaningful is to notice new things about them, to make them personal and so on. And then you just know it. Well, it turns out for you, for me, for most people we know, probably 98% of what we know, we didn't memorize. So I ask the question, why do we teach people the importance of this activity that in their life is going to cover so little territory? Anyway, if you're mindful and you notice things about it, 
you're likely to remember it. And if you're mindful, noticing things about whatever it is, you're going to be enjoying it and energized while you do it. I have an anecdote for you because it reminds me of your orchestra story. Paco de Lucia, who is one of, to me, is the best flamenco guitarist, practices 10 hours a day. Flamenco is all rhythm, 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 rhythm. And he started playing with Al Demiolo, John McLaughlin, jazz guitars, where it's all improvisation. And he said, when he started playing with them, it was very, very difficult. So contrary to what he did before, what he's one of the world's best at. He said, now, after practicing, after playing with those guys, he cannot live without it. And I thought yeah. to myself, did that to me illustrates what you're talking about. It yeah. starts off as difficult, but he stayed with it and he changed. Well, it became activity. You know, the practice wasn't difficult. What was difficult was his fighting with himself, saying this is not the way to learn. The shift yeah, in his head to yeah. our final point. Point number 10, life is a people game. Yeah. This is what I hinted at earlier when I said that the world is a social construction. And when you recognize that it was created by people, to the extent that it doesn't work for you, it occurs to you to change it. So, for example, when I give a talk, I might ask, how tall are you? You look very tall, Duff. 6'1", in U.S. terms. Okay. Okay, cool. So, you're 6'1". Let's say you're in the audience. I'd ask you to come up uh, to the stage. I'm 5'3", so we look like this. <laughs> then I'd ask you, can you put your hand out? And you'd put your hand out, and I'd put my hand. And your hand's probably two, three inches larger than mine. And then the question I would raise is, should we do any physical thing the same way? It seems absurd. Should we hold a golf club, a tennis racket, do anything physically the same way? Because physically we're so different. Now, the point that I'm making is, if the rule is made by you, and you teach people, this is the way, I'm never going to be very good at this thing because we're so different. So the more different you are from the person who created the activity, the more important it is probably for you to find your own way. And so whenever you're taught to do something, rather than take it as commandments coming from the heavens, you take it as a, a, a guide. This is sort of the way you hold the tennis racket. This is sort of the way you write this report, whatever it is you're doing. And then that would encourage people to find their own way in which, you know, so I paint. If I am true to myself, no one can be a better Ellen Langer than I. You know, if I'm trying to be Rembrandt, you know, and I may be the 12 millionth Rembrandt-like person, and that's fine. But if Rembrandt tried to be me, he couldn't be me if he were alive. So the point is that when we recognize that it was all created by people, people who are a particular way, physically, emotionally, who have certain biases and so on, and that we don't take that way as law, but rather as a suggestion of possibility and make it our own, it will feel better and we're likely to, to be more successful. Mm. So imagine, you know, I have a scale, it's a mindfulness scale. It would probably be bizarre if I didn't do well on the scale. Yeah. So the more like me you are, the better you're gonna do on the scale. <laughs> if somebody else created, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's what I mean, it's all put in place by people. So even a simple thing, you walk into a room and, you know, or you sit down on a chair, now, if you and I sit down on the same chair, one of us is going to be uncomfortable. But most people just accept that the chair is as the chair is, rather than uh, the chair was created by Pete, for example. And so for you, you're going to add something to the bottom. For me, I'm going to cut the legs. And that way, I'll be comfortable. Right? When we recognize that it's all put there by people, everything becomes fungible. Now. Interesting. As I'm speaking, I realized that wasn't what I meant when I originally wrote that thing to you. What I meant when I wrote that was essentially that because everything can be understood in so many different ways, that if I want to belittle you, it's very easy for me to do so. If I want to find you attractive, appealing, it's very easy for me to do so. Right. And what happens is that, uh, so you're coming to me for a job and 
if you think that it doesn't matter how you interact with me, that I'm going to appreciate all of your wonderful assets, you're being blind to the fact that it's all a people game. I tell my students, you know, while you're a student, it's very important to show me how smart you are. Once you get out in the world, it's more important for you to show other people how smart they are. And so who would you want in your company? Do you want that person who makes you feel good? Or do you want the person who, you know, who may know some answers that are already in the past and people consistently use yesterday's solutions to solve today's problems? So the fact that you were a great problem solver in the past doesn't mean you're going to be a great problem solver in, in the present. That that cabana boy that I spoke about uh, has enormous information that could be useful. So why should I hire that person who I don't like? I'm not likely to. Now, people don't feel comfortable just saying I'm hiring you, giving me the raise, doing this, buying from this store, whatever it is, because the person was nice. But ultimately, that's what it's all about. That if people like you, they will understand the situation in such a way as to make it the smart thing to do. I always think of Carl Sagan's quotation, people are not always grateful for demonstrations of their credulity. In other words, you go around making people look stupid. They'll tend to pay you back. They tend to remember it. No, exactly. But, but I'm saying, you know, in, in any situation, that if you remember that the person, that it's all created by people, that people, no matter what their status is, still have the same feelings that the rest of us have, and so we don't ignore that as we get on with the task. Success, I believe, is more likely. And we'll finish on that note. I'm glad you mentioned that you're an artist. EdelineLanger.com is your personal website. Your books and your art is available for purchase on there. Yeah. You've been listening to the podcast 10 Lessons. It took me 50 years to learn. You've been listening to us, but we'd like to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at 10lessonslearn.com. That's podcast at 10, number one, zero, lessonslearn.com. And anything you want to know about Ellen, her books, her art, you let me know, and I'll make sure that you get to it. We'll find a way to get it to you. And by the way, when you're out there, go ahead and hit the subscribe button because this is the podcast that is making the world a wiser place, lesson by lesson. My name's Duff Watkins, and our guest today has been Ellen Langer. Thank you for joining us. 